Our scripture passage this morning brings us to the book of Matthew chapter 5 as we read verses 38 through 48. Hear now the word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord Jesus, would you grant us your spirit today so that we can not only hear your words, but so that we can understand your words. So that we not only hear your words, but so that they bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when we think of what God wants Christians to be like, I don't know if you think this. If you look at the last phrase from our reading this morning, Jesus really says it very well. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think if you wanted to put that in a different phrase, you would say, God wants us to be holy. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has this wonderful book. It's called Devoted to God. And in it, he takes that word holy, which I think sometimes we struggle to understand what it really means. We, we struggle. We know that holy is an important word. We know it's a word that relates to God. We know it relates to perhaps perfection, but we're, we struggle sometimes to really know what holy means. And one of the things that Ferguson says is that to be holy is to be devoted to God. It means to be set apart and different from other things. Uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, the, the utensils in the, in the temple were different. They were set apart. They were holy. They were, they were distinct from all the other items that might have looked similar in, in, the, re, in the region of Israel. There was something different about these particular items. And, and the idea of holiness, of us being called to be holy as Christians, is that we are supposed to be different people. We are supposed to stand out. We, we do things differently. We conduct our business differently. There is something about us that when people look at us, they say, this is a stranger and an alien in the land that we live in. And sometimes when Paul talks about Christians, he talks about us like we're, like we're visitors from another planet, walking around among these people. Uh, we look like them, and we live lives similar to them, and yet there are things about us that are tells. They just look at us, and they know this is not a normal person. 
And, and I mean that not normal in all the good sense of the word. Um, we are supposed to be different people with different priorities, different missions, different concerns, things that matter to us that our neighbors don't even think about caring about. And this really is the ideal. So to, to my mind, this is one of those passages that really drives that home and in a very practical way. This is a very prag, pragmatic, practical, tangible passage today. This is not an idealistic, head-in-the-clouds uh, sort of theological statement, which admittedly, sometimes the things Jesus says seem that way. And yet this is about as practical and personal of a passage as you could possibly imagine. And, and I am sure that this is the kind of passage that calls us to be different. Um, and I also know that it militates against my very nature. Um, because I do have this little inner lawyer who, when I, when I read the Bible, my little inner lawyer, he's very skilled. He's been practicing for, for many years. He, he knows how to take things apart and try to find his way through the legal loopholes that he hopes are there. And this is one of those passages where every time I get to it, my little lawyer comes out and says, listen, I, I can handle this. This is one of those passages that I can, I can find a way to keep living life the way I do and also say, yeah, I believe all of this. Um, and if you're like me, most of, most of this section is like that for you. Um, because I read this and my, 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 my immediate thoughts are, don't resist. Why, if we did that, all the Christians would be downtrodden. Uh, let him have your cloak as well. We'd all be naked, right? Um, Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse. We would all be empty-handed. Um, how are we supposed to live in that kind of world? So in other words, I have an army of top lawyers inside my own heart, always at work, when a passage like this is read. And it, it, well, here's the reason why these little lawyers are, are there. Because I like control over my world. I like preserving my own sense of justice. And I want my priorities to be at the top. Um, I'm thoroughly convinced this passage has been misinterpreted and misused over the years. Uh, about 15 years ago, I was a pacifist. Now, don't look at me like, like I've, I've been poisoned or something. Uh, I was a pacifist I, for about two years. I ardently defended in every theological conversation that I was in that pacifism could be held to. You can be a conservative Christian who holds to the, the, the literal meaning of Scripture and defend pacifism. Uh, eventually I was defeated and I realized that was not true. Um, and I'll touch on this a little, but I can't go as deep into it as I might have. But I, I, I looked at passages like this one and I used it as justification for my, my belief that Christians could never, ever use violence. I, I believed you couldn't use violence in defense of yourself and you couldn't even use violence in defense of others. There was a season where my, my wife was really glad we never had a home break-in. Uh, what are you going to do? I'm going to preach at him. She's like, we're going to die. We're going to die. Um, <laughs> um, but there was a season where I was very convinced where Jesus saying, if, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I understood that to be a blanket statement that Christians should never use weapons and they should never even defend other people. I've repented of that view. I'm going to give you a positive understanding of what Jesus is saying here. 
But my larger point I'm leading to is this. This is a passage that is misinterpreted and it is misread from all angles, even by people who are honestly trying their best to read the text and they come to it and they say, I can't make this work. I don't understand what he's saying. And yet there is also this consistent overall message that ties together every verse of our passage. What is that? What's that consistent overall message? It's this. Christians are to stand out from the world. We're not to be like the world. Instead of living like everyone else and constantly insisting on our rights, we are the sort of people who are willing to be insulted and beaten and even have our rights trampled upon. Instead of having an iron grip on our possessions like everyone else in the world, we of all people should be ones who hold our possessions loosely. Instead of accumulating a rogues gallery of of enemies, people that we look out at the world and say, I hate that person, I hate that person, that person is my enemy, I want them defeated, I want them thrown down. Instead, Jesus says, that's how everyone else does life. We are supposed to love our enemies. In what sense do you love your enemies? Jesus is challenging us. Is there any sense in which you love your enemies? Then why do we do all of this? Jesus says, The motivation in verse 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. In other words, your standards are too low. You look around yourself and you look for the lowest common denominator in all of society and you make sure you're a little better than that. That is not what a Christian is. Now, I want to be positive in how we approach the text. And when I say that, I mean I want to be constructive and talk about what's actually here, not about what's not here. So let me address, let me up front address my misunderstanding that I mentioned, my pacifism. Uh, I want to do that up front, and then I want to spend the bulk of our time actually positively talking about the passage. So uh, I mentioned it before I already, that I believed that this passage was teaching pacifism, that, that the idea that an, under no circumstances can a Christian ever use violence, either in self-defense or in the defense of others. Now, this is a big subject. If we wanted, we could talk about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. We could talk about commands for violence to be used in the Old Testament. And we could sort of build this case that pacifism is not what God teaches in Scripture. But rather, I would just say a couple of things. Instead of going all those different directions and sending us off, sort of careening away from the text, let me just mention a couple of things. First of all, Jesus is dealing in this passage with personal insults. He is dealing with threats to comfort, and he is dealing with threats to possessions, not threats to someone's life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Yet when you read the Old Testament law, you do have laws that allow people, for example, to defend their home in the middle of the night. In Exodus 22, if someone invades your home at night and they get killed by the homeowner, the homeowner is not punished. The homeowner has no liability for the person who invaded their home and was killed in the middle of the night as a matter of self-defense. And so it's important that we not take Jesus to be contradicting the law of God. You remember, you read the life of Jesus, one of the things you see is that he keeps the law, he upholds the law, he opposes the misunderstanding of God's law, but he doesn't take a plain law like this and say, no, 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 this is bad. Instead, he takes the law and he deepens it. He doesn't contradict the law. That was the thing that I got wrong 
back when I held to these views. I saw Jesus as being so revolutionary that he was actually throwing out a passage like Exodus 22 and basically saying, not anymore. And what I missed back then and what I missed at the time and what I saw later was that it is not considered retaliation to use proportionate force to stop someone for taking the life of another person. It's not retaliation if I can see someone being killed and I do what I can to stop that person from being killed. Jesus says no retaliation. That's not what retaliation is. Retaliation is when we disproportionately respond to harm beyond the harm done. Right? Jesus is dealing in this passage toward our, our own personal posture when it comes to injuries to our pride or when it comes to the pain that can come uh, our way for belonging to Jesus. He's talking about our otherworldly character as Christians. He is not saying that we should now become people who are so monastic we don't care what happens to people around us or who don't care what happens to our families or who don't stand up for the defenseless in our own lives. We are to be aliens and strangers in this land, but we are not to be monastic and indifferent. We're supposed to be people who will bear insults for the sake of Christ, but we're also not supposed to throw ourselves into the mouths of lions. Scripture speaks of the importance of protection and defense of one's family. And so because of this, I just want to upfront dismiss this idea. I'm not going to keep bringing up pacifism. I don't want to be defensive this whole sermon. But, but in the time we have, I want to get our focus on the right place when it comes to this passage so that we can see positively the otherworldly character of the Christian because it shines through in this passage. Jesus is describing a weird person here. Jesus is describing somebody that none of us just have bursting and waiting to come out of us unless we have Christ, unless we have the Spirit. So first, I want to address the tradition Jesus is dealing with. Second, I want to positively appreciate the mandate Jesus is pushing his people towards. And then third, let's talk about how Jesus motivates his people in all this. So you have three points. I tried desperately to make this alliterate. And finally, I was just like, nope, I've got two alliterations and one non-alliteration at the very beginning. So our, our three points are tradition, mandate, and motivation. It's like an incomplete building. It's a terrible feeling. Um, hopefully the content makes up for the lack of showiness. Um, first, let's address the tradition, right? This is the tradition. If you look in verse 38, you see it. This is the tradition that Jesus is addressing when he says these words. Here's the tradition. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. So he's engaging with this idea. If you remember the previous weeks, we looked at the Old Testament laws concerning things like divorce, concerning remarriage. And one of the lessons that we learned is that such laws existed because of sin, because of hardness of heart, and they were meant to sort of rein in the sinful tendencies of the Israelite people. These laws mitigated sin. And so Jesus said, in essence, these laws exist because your hearts are hard. Well, today's passage is similar. Jesus is quoting three possible passages. They're all basically identical. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Latin phrase for that is the lex talionis. It means the law of retribution. You can find it in Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. I'm giving you specific texts, not because I want you to look them all up and read the exact same verse in all three places, but because I want you to know he's quoting scripture here. 
You don't always find this principle in the Old Testament. You, you find it in other laws in the ancient world, too. The, the Code of Hammurabi expresses this as well. Now, how does this law function in the Old Testament? This law is restraining us from something. What is it restraining us from doing? It is restraining us from taking revenge beyond what was done to us. Now, think, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my phrasing there very carefully. The law is restraining us from taking revenge beyond what was done to us. So the, the passage is reigning in our tendency to pay back and then some. Um, you may have had this happen, right? You're, 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 it's a, a peaceful fall afternoon. Suddenly you hear screaming from the other room. Some child howling in pain. So you run to see what's the matter, and there's a sibling standing over them, fist raised. You say, what did you do? They say, well, I hit him, but he took my toy, right? (laughs) I hit him, but he took my toy. Now, if we're just thinking about equity and fairness, what does that demand? It demands the return of the toy, right? But he doesn't just get his toy back. What does he do? He gets a little something else, right? (laughs) Um, They hit, and they thought they were doing the right thing, maybe, but but the answer that they gave wasn't proportionate. They gave a little extra, a little punishment on top to teach a lesson, right? Not only do you not take my toy, but you don't mess with me. There's a lesson there, see? And it's not proportionate, because what's proportionate is the return of the toy. Kids are like this. Grown-ups are like this. Right? Grown-ups want to take it a step beyond when we get hurt too, don't we? When someone hurts our feelings, we don't just want to fix things. We want the other person to hurt like we hurt. And we maybe want to make them hurt a little more than we hurt so that they learn the lesson never to mess with me again. You hear stories of road rage. About a year ago, I remember hearing a story about road rage. Some mother was not driving well in traffic, perhaps, and a man in the car behind her decided to pull his gun out and shot, his, and shot her car, put a bullet through the car. Her child was sitting in the back seat with a bullet through her chest and died. Is that proportionate? <laughs> That's retribution. That's exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. Now, it's dramatic. And it's upsetting and it's even angering, but it's an example of the way adults can respond disproportionately to harm that's done to us. That is our tendency. Our tendency is to make things even, but then we want to take a little more. We want to even things up and then we want to teach a lesson on top. And these Old Testament laws are functioning in such a way that they're keeping the Israelites from taking more than was taken to begin with. You see that? If someone takes an eye, they lose an eye, but they don't lose a tooth also. Right? If someone knocks out your tooth, they lose a tooth, not teeth. So the punishment should fit the crime. It should be proportionate to what was taken, but not more than was taken. And these laws, they enshrined that principle in Israel. Don't go beyond the bounds of justice. And what this also meant was that just because someone hurt you or someone took from you, it didn't mean you were obligated to pursue them necessarily, right? You you just weren't allowed to go further. You could let them go. You just couldn't keep chasing them. 
and taking more and more, right? So you're not looking at a strict form of justice. What you are seeing is a restrained justice that's being established in these texts. You probably heard the uh, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You thought that's a really rough law. That's a, that's a difficult law to live with. And actually what it's doing, you see it now, I hope, that it's actually almost like bounds on, on justice. You, you can go this far, but you can't go any farther. Jesus is dealing with people who have been taking these passages, which do in fact maintain equity, and they, he's, they prevent disproportionate redistribution, retribution between people, and evidently they've begun to sort of hinge the rest of the way they deal with each other on this passage, and what they're doing is they're going back to it, and instead of seeing it as a boundary, they're seeing it as an obligation. We must always keep things even. They were using laws like this as an excuse to never forgive. They were using it as an excuse to never show mercy, to never show love. You could imagine someone saying, I know you didn't mean to kill my ox, and I know you are very poor, and I know that you are unable to pay, but I must insist, an eye for an eye, it's written right here. Right? There's no flexibility in being able to show mercy to someone because, well, this is how I read the text. Even when someone could show love, even when someone could show mercy, even when someone didn't have to retaliate, people were insisting on it, and they were using this law as their excuse. See, this is the tradition Jesus is speaking to here. He's not speaking to the strict reading of the text. Jesus is not saying, in fact, he never said this, Jesus is not saying, God gave you a bad law, let me fix it. As with the other laws of scripture, he's addressing the erroneous reading of a corrupted application of the text. It's the first point this morning. It's the tradition. We have to address it so we can see what he's really speaking to in the rest of this. Well, then second, we move to the mandate. We see what Jesus is taking issue with, but then what, what then is Jesus positively teaching? Well, listen to the rest of this again. I'm going to read it because I want you to hear it in light of what we've just said. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, so Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil. And then he gives examples of what it looks like in practice to not resist somebody who's evil. What's it look like to not resist the evil person? By the way, this is why I did this as one sermon and not eight sermons. <laughs> because all of this is him basically giving his point and then giving application and application and application. He's giving examples and illustrations. What does it look like to do this? So first he mentions the slap. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Think about it. Think about this. In a right-handed culture, if someone hits your right cheek, that's a backhand. Right? That is not an assault. That is an insult. Right? Hitting someone on the left cheek... That would be a punch. That would be someone saying, I'm going to make you hurt, right? This is a slap. It's an insult. It gets you going, man. It gets you worked up. If you've ever been slapped, <laughs> if you've ever been slapped, if you've ever, I, I was in grade school, I've been slapped a few times. 
I, I've, I've slapped a few times. I've, I've been in uh, fights as a kid. I've always lost. Uh, I would like to be able to say I was a principled pacifist from a young age, and I just lived that out. No, I just lost fights. Um, <laughs> but one thing I know is that, I, and this is still true of me, if, and I, I can't even remember the last time someone hit me. Um, I don't want to ever find out. But the last time I was hit, I just remember, uh, I think I have a chill personality, and then I find out, oh, yeah, I'm a very angry person. Uh, you find out very, very quickly. And, and angry enough to get violent. And, and Jesus says, you may get hot under the collar, but God's people are not barroom brawlers. That is not us. Don't use your instinctive desire to keep things even as an excuse to respond to insults like that. Take it like a man, is what Jesus is saying. I realize that's a sexist thing to say in 2021, but he's saying take it like a man. Second, he mentions the tunic, right? He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. There's a differentiation here between cloak and tunic. They're two parts of the garb that people wore then. Uh, the tunic was the inner garment. It wasn't quite what we would call underwear, but it was similar. The cloak, though, was actually something that even the poorest people, if, if you got sued and your things got repossessed, they would not even take your cloak. Um, because it, 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 even if everything in your life got repossessed, you got to keep the cloak because it's also your bedding. It's also the thing that there's so much cloth there, if I could just talk in terms of what, what's going on in your outfit, that you actually could sleep on it. It, you, it gave you a cushion. You could ball it up under your head. You could sleep. Um, it was basically one of those necessities. Uh, it was meant, this law, this, this law was a tradition in Israel. The idea was that you, you didn't go around naked. You had something to sleep on. You might have no home, you might not have anywhere to lay your head, but you at least had your garment. And so this is Jesus saying, the Christian is different because he's willing to give up even something he needs. Your cloak was seen as a need. Um, and by the way, this indeed makes us weird people to the watching world. The idea that you aren't legally required to yield your cloak, but you're going to give it up. That's what Jesus is saying. This reflects very different values than the people around us. We are a very rule-based culture. You could insist on your rights, Jesus says, and the Christian might not insist on his rights. You could, and you choose not to. Um, at one point, Paul writes about this. Paul writes to the Corinthian churches, and he's very upset because these Corinthians, instead of settling their issues in the church, they're going into law courts and they're suing each other. And Paul is upset that things have gotten so far in their inter interpersonal relationships that they actually are involving the secular authorities in how Christians sort out their differences together. And then he says this. I think he's dovetailing with Jesus here. Listen to what Paul says. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another, and this is a different conversation to have, obviously, but he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul is saying, if you have to choose between having Jesus dishonored in the courts because you guys can't figure your issues out, it would be better for you to get ripped off than for Jesus to look bad. Are you willing to be ripped off? 
we should be willing to not insist upon our rights, even though justice might be on our side for the sake of our witness. That's what Jesus is saying. That makes us weird. That makes us weird. Um, it's actually made me think of, so I was trying to think of situations like this, and I thought of something in my life at least. A few months ago, I got rear-ended by somebody in a Walmart parking lot, and my car was sitting still, and this car was backing up. It was a Jeep, and he backed up, and he backed up, and I saw that he was still backing up. I thought, he doesn't think I'm in this spot, and I laid on my horn, and he kept going, and you just heard that beautiful crunch, just that beautiful uh, tail light gone in the rear corner, and so, you know, he got out. He was apologetic. We we exchanged insurance information. I contacted my insurance about a month later and said, hey, has this finished processing? And he said, yeah, but this guy says that it's your fault. Um, and what bothered me was that he had a Jesus fish on his car. And, and you know, I talked about driving tests for people with Jesus fish, right? You need to give those driving tests to people with the Jesus fishes. Um, that bothered me. That bothered me. I was like, maybe he bought the car and the Jesus fish was already on there, but I expected him to tell the truth to the insurance company. Um, I think about it, the, you know, working all of this stuff out and the insurance and all of this, and I find myself just saying, I'll figure out a way to fix my own taillight. Um, that's, and then there, there's not, it's not like my motivations are totally pure. There is some bureaucracy there that is just next level that uh, just sounds awful to deal with. So, um, you know, I think about what Paul says, why not be defrauded? Why not give up something that is owed to you? It, it makes us weird. It, let, let's be weird. Let's stand out. They say, let, keep Portland weird. Keep Christianity weird. Christianity should be weirder than Portland. That's pretty weird, actually. <laughs> I've been downtown. <laughs> um, third, he mentions, he mentions going the extra mile. He's giving all these illustrations one after the other. He mentions going the extra mile. One of the things that Jewish people hated, if you were to go to a first century Jewish person and say, what do you hate more than anything else in the whole world? You know, they probably wouldn't say baby shark because baby shark didn't exist yet. But they, they would say, I hate the Romans. I hate the Romans. And one of the things they hated about the Romans was the presence of these soldiers in their land. And here's what, was, what really was lousy, was the Romans were allowed to conscript civilians to serve them as burden carriers. So if the, if the soldiers needed to get from one place to another and they had a lot of stuff to carry, they genuinely could just look at a Jewish person and say, hey, you, carry this for me. You see it, right? You see it in the New Testament. Simon of Cyrene. He gets conscripted by the Roman soldiers and said, you're going to carry this cross. And so he does. And Jesus is taking this thing that his listeners hated. They hated that they could be conscripted to carry and lift burdens. And Jesus says, you hate this? He says, give them even more. Give them that extra mile. Give them more than they ask for. They, they hate doing this. Right? And, and if, if you have like a libertarian impulse in it, you're like, they stole his labor. They have stolen himself. It is a form of slavery. Like I could think of all the things that a libertarian would say. And you, and you go, it's all true. And, and Jesus says, let them. Let them rob you. Let them steal your labor. Go the extra mile. Give them the extra mile. Then he mentions the beggar. 
It's the fourth illustration he gives. The beggar, he says, if someone begs of you, Jesus says, give. He says, do not use justice as an excuse not to help someone. It's wrong for us to say, well, he has to earn his own way, an eye for an eye. Let him earn those alms that he's, he's asking for. Now, it's too big of an issue here for me to address, but we need to use careful judgment, and we need to be willing to do what we can to think well about how to help someone. So if someone says, give me 50 bucks, that doesn't mean that actually the most loving thing is to just do whatever he says. Um, the most loving thing to do might be get to know him, figure out what his life situation is, figure out why he's unemployed, talk to him about his, about his work, invite him to church, have him sit uh, under the preaching of the word, uh, tell him, hey, if you become a member, if you submit yourself to the church, we will help you, we will bless you, we will do what we can for you. So all of what I'm saying here doesn't preclude us doing that sort of thing. There's a great little book called When Helping Hurts. And in this book, the authors make this case that every needy person who is, who's needy or hungry or homeless, they need something specific to get out of the situation they're in. And it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And so you need to get to know the person that you want to help. And so we should have a posture of help, though, says Jesus. So let's not even worry about the details right now of how you help someone. But are you willing to help someone? Or are you closed off to even the possibility of assisting someone who is in genuine need? Um, this person's our fellow human being. How we help someone is a different discussion. But Jesus is getting at the heart attitude here. He's saying, do not use your sense of justice as an excuse for inaction. Because Jesus says already, he's already said it. You should be willing to be defrauded. You should be willing to have something taken from you in order to help someone. <clears throat> These are the four examples Jesus uses. He says the slap. He uses the tunic, the extra mile. He uses the beggar, right? In every one of these cases, what you start to see is that Jesus is not challenging the Jewish scriptures. He's not challenging the laws of Israel. Instead, he's saying that Christians should have a different attitude. We should have different behavior towards others that distinguish us from the people around us. We should be different. So operating within this framework of strict retribution, someone needs to say it. There is a natural chain of evil that continues forever if we are committed to always giving someone what they deserve and then some. And that is a chain that never, ever ends until someone willingly says, I was struck, I was harmed, I was, I was offended, and I will not respond. Someone's got to be willing to be the grown-up in the room and say, I'm not going to do it again. And be willing to walk away with egg on their face looking like the weak one. That's actually taking it like a man. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Because if every slap should always be answered by a bigger slap, the cycle doesn't end, right? Unless someone's willing to say, I will not seek my way. I will stop seeking my way. That's actually what Jesus is, right? Jesus is him breaking into the cycle and saying, strike me, hit me, crucify me. I won't respond. We can always look back to that moment where the cycle actually gets broken. If we can overlook offense, Jesus saying we should overlook it. Just because you can, in terms of, of justice, just because you can demand something doesn't mean you must or even that you should. Um, one, one beautiful example I can think of um, 
I had an employer back when I was when I uh, lived in Kansas. I had an employer who was also a landlord, and there was a family that lived on his property, and uh, this family was renting the house from him, and this family left in a hurry. They missed their last month of rent, and they left the house completely trashed. It was just, it was just awful. It was disgusting. The house was damaged. And I asked him, I said, are you going to pursue them for damages? Are you going to involve the, the judge or, or the law courts? And his response to me was, you know, it's been 15 years, so I can't remember word for word. But I do remember him saying something along these lines. He said, the Lord has taken care of me. The Lord has provided for me. He said, if I pursue this family that's already broke, I can't imagine what good really comes from that. That was what he said. He he made a decision to overlook a wrong when he had every right to pursue it and the, the law would have been on his side. Maybe you say to yourself, but he was wrong, right? Those people, they need to learn that they can't just trash houses and they can't just skip out on rent. They're just going to do it again. Yes, maybe they will. But the landlord was responsible for his decision in the situation, and he chose to overlook the harm as a way of showing mercy where mercy was needed. And he did it because of Jesus. He did it because he was a Christian and because God had taken care of him, and he looked at all the mercy that he'd been shown in his life and all the ways that he'd wronged others, and yet God was still taking care of him, and he chose not to pursue any further. I'm not saying he had an obligation to do that, but he was willing to do that. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to overlook a hurt? Are you will, o- willing to overlook an injustice? Do you have opportunities to settle the score in your own life? Jesus gives this instruction for our hearts, doesn't he? He says, he says don't resist. Go the extra mile. Don't insist on your rights. Hold on to your rights loosely. Hold on to your rights as loosely as you hold on to your finances. You hold it, you're responsible, but you're willing to judiciously let it go when it needs to happen. Third this morning, Jesus gives us our motivation. When you you get to verse 43, Jesus doesn't change subjects. In fact, he's elaborating on what he just said. What does it take to be the kind of person who will overlook an insult, to give to someone, to go the extra mile? What does it take? One thing that it takes is a realization that we are different. We are supposed to stand out. We are supposed to be weird. Look what he says in verse 46 again. For, remember I always say, if, if you've got a for there, then you need to ask what the for is there for. There's an argument before. So he's made all these statements about how we should live. And he says, therefore, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Um, two things here. One is, one as I mentioned, is this realization we are supposed to be weird. We are supposed to be different. We are supposed to stand out. This will make you stand out. Jesus says, you're supposed to be better than the tax collectors. You're supposed to be better than godless Gentiles. He says, this is not you. This is not your identity. You are different. Your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, remember? You're not supposed to be just like everyone else. You know what's really weird in our day? Grace. Grace is really weird in our day. So, so be weird by being the unexpectedly gracious person. That is weird in our day. Who does that? Who is gracious? He tells us in these verses one more motivation. The motivation is, is love. 
He says, it takes being someone who loves. Love is not a feeling, by the way. Love is caring about the good of another person and prioritizing them above yourself. That's love. Jesus says we should love. And he, and he doesn't say we should love those who love us. He's not saying just naturally love those that it comes naturally to you to love. Because, look, there are some people who are very easy to love. Uh, they see things your way. They are agreeable. Sometimes they compliment you. They don't put up a fuss. They don't criticize. Maybe, maybe you're even friends. It's easy to love those people. Jesus says, that's easy. It takes love to pursue the good of someone who isn't easy to care about. It takes love to set aside your own rights. How loosely do you have to hold your own rights in order to do these things? The answer is very loosely. Paul says love doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Um, there's an attitude beneath all of these things. Jesus is moving his people away from their priorities toward a self-sacrificing attitude in everything that he says here. There is a Christ-centered explanation for why a Christian should consistently apply a principle of self-sacrifice across the whole swath of his life. And there is a reason why a person who doesn't know Christ would not live that way. What did Jesus do? Jesus, Jesus embodied all of this. Jesus is the supreme example of loving your enemies and praying for your enemies. You were once his enemy. We were his enemies. And he loved us. He did not insist on his rights. We were his persecutors. His blood was on our hands. And yet he laid his life down for us, right? He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for us. He prayed that our faith would be strong when we had no faith at all. He prayed that we would believe the gospel when we hear it. And he prays for us even now. The Christian has a savior who has self-sacrificed for him. We above all people know what it is to be clothed by another when we didn't deserve to be clothed at all. We above all people know what, is, what it is to insult God to his face, to be his enemies, and yet to be received like we are his own family. We know what it is to be hungry and broke beggars who become dressed and clothed like, like we're kings. We, we were loved when we were unlovable. We didn't get punished, and we deserved to be punished. And until we see ourselves as unlovable, we are never going to see anyone else as an object of our own love either. God loves his people, and in ourselves, we are very unlovable. We are very unlovable. And Jesus says, you're supposed to be weird. You're supposed to be different. You have every reason why you would be. He says, you're beloved by your Father in heaven, and because you've been loved, you can refuse to insist on your own way. So let's be weird, and let's be gracious, and let's be long-suffering. Because of the love of Christ, we can love the world around us. It's what we're called to, because it's what Jesus died for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace who treats us with exquisite kindness, of which we are not entitled. Would you remind us of your own posture of generosity and love to us? Would you, would you help us to live that out in our lives?
so that others could look at us and say, I am sure that they have met Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.